This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. This was a stunning success. And Dr. Kavita Patel. The approval ratings of everybody are pretty darn low and only look to get lower. Hello, and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we come out of the midterms and enter another election cycle and what our leaders are saying and doing about them. Today, we're going to cover what's affectionately known in the Beltway as the lame duck congressional session. We'll unpack like what's at stake in this lame duck session, why indeed the lame duck session can often be the most important time in the legislative cycle, and what people are saying or not doing about them and not saying. And then in our bonus members only content, we are going to talk about the Respect for Marriage Act, as well as just in general, where we are in 2022 when it comes to equal rights for all in the United States. So with that, Norm, that's pretty loaded. I just want to start by saying that before I came to D.C., which is now you know 17 years ago, I had a no understanding. Anytime someone attached the words lame duck to something, I often thought, hey, that means they have no power and they have no relevance. And lo and behold, as I then came to Capitol Hill and worked through several lame duck sessions, and sometimes did some of the most important legislation it just that I personally saw, both domestic and occasionally foreign policy, that I realized the significant gravity. Can you just give listeners your kind of summary and take on what the lame duck means and why it is so important? And then in your opinion, kind of what's at stake? There's a lot that needs to get done, which is why it's a packed session. But what's really in your mind some high priorities that must get done? Well, first, Kavita, uh, let's say almost always, as you noted, uh, these lame ducks become important. And the reason is every Congress basically has two years. And whatever is done, even if you get an inch before the finish line, if you don't complete it by the end of the Congress, which is January 3rd at noon in the following year, it dies and you have to go right back to the starting line. Do not pass go, do not collect the $200, you're right back at the beginning. So the urgency, if you've gone through hearings and maybe a bill that's passed one house and it's waiting to pass the other house, and then you're going to have to go to a conference and it's a priority you'd like to deal with, the lame duck becomes the place where you try and push it through. It's also usually now the case that they never complete the appropriations. You could have funding run out and you don't want to start that all over again. So you got a lot of stuff. Now it becomes much more urgent for another stark reality, which is we're moving from unified government, albeit with extremely narrow margins, three, four, or five in the House, to a tied Senate, to divided government, with an extremely close margin in the House, Republicans with a majority of what will probably be five, and very possibly a 51-49 Democratic Senate. And whether next week the election in Georgia turns out to return Reverend Warnock, Senator Warnock, or bring in almost unthinkable Herschel Walker, that matters for the lame duck as well. And I I can wait to talk about that. But let me just say, one of the things, if it's a 50-50 Senate that you absolutely want to get done during this lame duck is more of the judicial confirmations and the remaining executive branch ones 
because if it's a 50-50 Senate, all the committees have an equal number of members and it becomes much easier to delay, obstruct, or kill nominations. If it's 51-49, then you have an additional Democrat on each committee and you can move them more quickly. And that would mean that the urgency on nominations and confirmations is a little bit less. But otherwise, knowing you're going to end up with Republican obstruction in the House, that they're going to use every power that they have. Mostly what people have been talking about is all the uh, hearings and all of the investigations. Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden, Afghanistan, the Justice Department. Mayorkas. We had the incoming chair of the relevant committee in the House, Michael McFaul, say just the other day that uh, they're expecting to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas because of the failures at the border. We hear a lot about that. They can't implement legislation, but they can block. And we know that they're going to try and block spending for all kinds of bills. And we know that uh, they're going to use the debt ceiling Uh, as a hostage. And we know Republicans in both houses have said they're going to do that. John Thune, the number two Republican in the Senate, said they'll try and use the debt ceiling to basically eviscerate Medicare and Medicaid and to get more tax cuts for corporations and the rich. So what does that mean? It means that first, the top priority right now is an omnibus appropriations bill because spending authority is going to run out very soon before the new Congress convenes. And if you can manage it, ideally, get spending for critical areas, not just for the coming year, but for two years to take us through the Republicans in the House. It's spending an aid to Ukraine. It's money for the Justice Department so that they don't block all investigations into Trump and other miscreants. It's getting funding for the Department of Homeland Security so they don't cut off the funding at the border. It's money for the CDC because they like to stop anything dealing with the next pandemic, much less what we continue to have in the fallout from this one, and on and on and on. Then becomes the most critical question, the debt ceiling. For reasons that I still find hard to fathom, Democrats did not, when they had the ability, deal with this issue. They just kept punning it for periods of time. If we breach the debt ceiling, that means that the full faith and credit of the United States is no longer in a place where people can trust it. Interest rates go up. It could precipitate a global financial crisis that might take us to something akin to the Great Depression. We've come close before, but we have a lot of people who are willing to put us over the cliff and Republican leaders in the House who wouldn't stop that. The way to deal with it, in my judgment, probably through reconciliation, is the so called McConnell rule, which basically gives the president the authority to make sure we don't go into default. But from what Greg Sargent of the Washington Post reported today, Democratic aides in the Senate are not sure that the old nemeses, the twin nemeses, Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, would go along with that. They say because they think it's too partisan, as if the Republicans trying to block it so that they can use the debt ceiling as a hostage isn't partisan. It's just bizarre. 
Now, next, and I'll say finally now that we can get into a broader dialogue, the Electoral Count Act. We got through the 22 uh, elections without huge disruptions. We continue to have challenges. We still have some officials in different states who want to disrupt elections. We could see 2024 as a disaster unless we can do reform of the Electoral Count Act so that the electoral votes can be counted legitimately and honestly. But remember, to do that, you got to get two bills through the House and Senate and then reconcile them, and they have real differences. And here we are in December. It's not like senators and House members are saying, you know what, we got to work round the clock between now and January 2nd. They're keeping the normal hours, which is a disgrace, and they're likely to want to go home for Christmas and New Year's. So there's a limited amount of time to do that. A lot of other priorities that they like to get accomplished, but those are at the top of the list. All right. This is great. We're going to have a, a ton of fodder for discussion as, as always. Just a, I wanted, that was a wonderful overview because I do think for most people, again, you're like lame duck. And especially in the kind of, if you look at a favorability rating of any Congress, but especially this Congress and marching into the new Congress, the approval ratings of everybody are pretty darn low and only look to get lower. But what's at stake, as you're pointing out, is so high. You mentioned McConnell, kind of all the rules that kind of get thrown into place in order to approve these spending bills. We've got a December 16th, just to put a finer point on it. And then I'm going to bring up at least the two, like one really important policy issue that I've been watching, the child tax credit. And then one that's like, I'll call it a somewhat political issue around leaning on Congress, President Biden leaning on Congress to take action during the lame duck on the railroad railroad workers union strike. So that's like a little bit, I'm just, but I'll just, again, give a little bit of this 12 kind of congressional annual spending bills that are, this is like the constant state of Congress, as you said, December 16th expiration of government funding. Um, Some listeners will recall that in previous times we've had to go through a government shutdown when Congress cannot make an agreement Interestingly enough, and I think Greg Sargent kind of backed this up, like people are pretty actually optimistic that there will not be a shutdown and that they'll be able to arrange something. And one of the reasons that they feel optimistic about is because, as usual, the each party, no matter who's in charge, puts in sweeteners that will get us to yes on these billions of a dollar in additional spending and trillions of total spending. And in this case, this is Democrats kind of asking for additional spending on the defense side, an additional 56 to 70 billion for defense, which would actually put it over kind of previous percentages of defense spending, and then additional non-defense spending and other kind of stopgap bills. You've already broken down some of those important priorities that are new. So COVID funding, a number of other issues. And then the reason there's an interesting dynamic at play, not just with McConnell and what McConnell, who is a spender at heart, by the way, when you look at actually McConnell's track record, he just likes to spend on his priorities. You've got a retiring GOP appropriator, Richard Shelby from Alabama. And, you know, retiring senators like to do a lot of things, especially on their way out of Congress. And he's got a chance to make Alabama gold. And so that's when the back deals, when I've worked in lame duck sessions, it'll come down to your point, to the twin nemeses, but also to kind of not to be surprised at what someone like a Richard Shelby could do if he thinks that he can deliver a win for Alabama in some way tucked into all these other things 
that are trying to get, you know, larger political folly against each other with, you know, Democrats and, and Republicans all giving each other high fives. Let me shift to one of the policy issues that I know we care about together, and it's the American Rescue Plan's child tax credit and the expansion of this. And also just for listeners to have like a memory of what this was, it made full credit available to families with the lowest incomes. And for the first time, actually, Norm, we actually have census data that backs that it succeeded in driving child poverty down. In fact, a report from the Center of Budget Policy and Priorities, which I'm reading from, said that this expansion, once it expires, will leave 19 million children or more than one in four children under the age of 17 ineligible for this tax credit and drive them back into poverty. So I, I want to just kind of ask you, this is not, though, unfortunately, like all things, this is not going to be cheap and the stakes are very high. Policymakers on the surface of it, reducing child poverty, that sounds incredible. They can expand this credit, but it will it will cost money or they can fail to do it and they can see the kind of what was seen as like a patch during COVID just completely evaporate. And I think there's no question that there's there's a lot of lobbyists and a lot of people trying to generate bipartisan support for this. But Norm, talk through um, just one, any insights, kind of your reaction, and then how we can, because this is something that I think the American public doesn't understand enough about, even if they've benefited from it, but how you would see uh, making the case to try to include this. And while you're doing that, I'm going to look at uh, what the actual cost would be to actually do this as an extension, but to do it as an extension that then includes covering a gap where unfortunately, ironically, some of the lowest income families actually were excluded from getting full credit for this gap because their incomes were too low. And it's because the credit would phase in with certain earnings and that earnings ended up um, coming in above a certain income level. So talk through reactions, how to make the case in a bipartisan basis to include this, what you think the likelihood is of this happening. So first, this was a stunning success. You know, we had a war on poverty, starting with Lyndon Johnson. It poured huge sums of money into a variety of programs, and it had a modest, real, but modest impact. The child tax credit did more in a year than the war on poverty did. It cut child poverty in half. And it would be tragic to lose that now and lose that progress and go back. A part of the case is the simple human and humanitarian one. These are kids. These are kids who are going to be hungry. These are kids who are going to suffer other deprivations. But there's also a fiscal case to make for it. And the fiscal case is that if we end up with 19 million or more children who are, because of their poverty, unable to get health care, unable to perform to their uh, potential in school, partly, as we know, with lots of research, if you are food deprived, your performance in school declines dramatically. And that means that our workforce is going to be in trouble down the road. It means that the costs that we will have to pay for health care, for mental health care, for other issues that emerge, including family abuse uh, and child abuse, 
are going to be significantly greater than what we would end up paying for this child tax credit. It's a simple, straightforward way of improving the lot of millions of people, but also keeping the society from having to pay a lot more in blood and money down the road. So there's a case to be made. Is that a case that will move enough Republicans? Probably not, as you say, Kavita, without trade-offs. Now, we have a dilemma there. You know, it, of course, one of the trade-offs could be more money for Alabama in return for more money for the child tax credit. Of course, the reality is that the state of uh, Alabama, like the state of Mississippi, like so many of these other states that have had money available to deal with poverty in their own states, have refused to spend it. Or in the case of Mississippi, have channeled it off to benefit Brett Favre and uh, the former governor and their cronies. But that at least is a possibility. I think the greater possibility is that you give Republicans a little in terms of tax cuts for the rich in return for getting the child tax credit. But remember, all of this adds to the deficit when now all the members are talking about fiscal discipline yet again. And so they've got a dilemma in figuring out how they're going to do this and how they're going to pay for it. And it might exacerbate the issue when it comes to the debt ceiling. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does? And how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Norm. And you touched on the kind of actually lowering costs to protect children from abuse and neglect and actually reductions in crime. I want to say something about one, one little kernel I remember from pushback on this was that having these tax credits in place, whether they're deemed generous or not, but even as they exist, would disincentivize work. And it's incredible. I just want to point out, we have evidence from France, Canada, UK, Germany, who have all had something like this in place for a long time and that they found that there was no statistical influence on employment for single mothers, for couples, for anybody. And then on top of that, estimates from both, you know, internal from the government and also again, external groups who kind of are fiscal hawks and look at this, not the faux people like the Federalist Society and people who have like zero ability to do any data analysis, but all say that 99.9% of working parents would continue to work even under an expanded credit. So I think that when you add all this up, Norm, if you just look at it on the surface, right? Lower neonatal and child mortality, better health and longevity, not just for children, but for their parents, higher future earnings for the child beneficiaries, 
lower cost to protect people, to protect children from child abuse and neglect, greater safety and reductions in crime, and then all helping to increase the potential for future tax payments. These are, these are future taxes that these children will likely pay into to keep programs sustainable. How do you say no to it? But like you, I'm also incredibly cynical unless they can cut some sort of deal. And what I can't tell from Greg Sargent's reporting, from anybody's reporting, Norm, what disturbs me, and this gets back to something you've talked about several times on this podcast, is media coverage. I am, maybe, correct me if I am wrong, I am not sure that people are getting enough on this coverage because it's a, it's, it's just not sexy. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to lend itself well to like a segment on top of like a primetime hour. But uh, it, we, we need, hopefully we can on this podcast, bring more attention to this. And again, there is no partisanship in this issue for anybody when you're talking about the health of our children and the wealth and ability of our children to survive. So thank you, Norm. That was just a nice, it's, it, there's so many policy issues I think a lot of people can spend time on. But for some reason, I have not seen enough on this in the media except for a save a occasional like op-ed here and there, not even in prominent papers, by the way. So that's been important. I just want to reinforce what you said, Kavita. You know, the coverage of Congress, still like the coverage of elections, tends to focus on horse race kinds of issues. Who's going to be the leader? How are they going to get along? The stories of Democrats in disarray, that now I think will be matched because in the House we have no idea what they're going to do with Kevin McCarthy, uh, will be stories about Republicans in disarray. But they are extremely reluctant, the reporters who cover Congress, as well as the White House press corps, which has its own embarrassments. They don't know much about policy and they don't want to cover policy. And they'll cover it only in the context of conflict. Now, that's the way it needs to be covered right now because we have these conflicts. But the sense in the election coverage or in the coverage after the election of what the stakes are and what it means for real people, which should be at the core of what journalists do, is hardly there at all. You're exactly right. I just want to welcome any of our listeners to continue to at least propagate some of the messages here, and even if it's just to educate the public, because this is exactly why words matter. And I think these are words that people should walk away with. Let's go to another issue that, to be honest with you, Norm, caught me a bit by surprise. Some others have said, no, Kavita, we could have seen this coming. Um, and this is President Biden and Labor Secretary Marty Walsh actually urging Congress to put into place some sort of agreement for the nation's railroad union workers who have been on strike. And this is very interesting coming. I was surprised because I know that behind the scenes, there has been so much going on by the administration. And you've got not just two giants who are friends to labor in the form of Marty Walsh, former Boston mayor, and longtime kind of incredible kind of union supporter and union negotiator, someone who's had to deal with incredible tense union issues. Uh, and then Joe Biden, someone who, when it comes to railroads, there is no better friend to this, you know, to this industry than President Joe Biden, who I have been on in many iterations of my life, been on the Amtrak when he would single-handedly come up and down and thank the workers, both as he got on and got off the trains. Okay, so let's just, let me just, I, I do want to get your reaction. I'm going to just at least kind of describe what's at stake here. 
they're asking for a new contract structure and an insertion by Congress to weigh in on a new contractual structure for something over 100,000 freight rail workers because that voting no on these agreements means that these workers could strike and there would literally be a shutdown. I didn't realize how big of a deal this was. I mean, I knew it was, but literally a shutdown of 40% of our goods in this country. Everything from food on our shelves to the parts that help make you know cars and, and buildings and computers work. The economic hit from such a shutdown would be $2 billion a day. Okay, then what is Congress? What can they do? They actually have clear authority to intervene in this instance. They can do that because of the impact to kind of domestic industries. And and this would be an incredible, this doesn't done lightly, but they would absolutely have the right to come in. and, and And there are 12 unions involved in this collective bargaining. Interestingly enough, seven of the 12 have actually agreed to the terms that have been proposed so far. Three have rejected and there are others that are kind of in various processes or either leaning towards rejection. So we've had now, Biden has been on this. He even triggered an emergency board, a presidential emergency board, I believe it was called, so that, that there were individuals who could report back to him, produce a report that actually recommended and supported 25% pay raises, back pay, preservation of what people would call high benefit health plans and uh, some sort of bonuses. But unfortunately, there has just been, for a lot of reasons, including the fact that you're talking about laborers who have literally died doing their jobs, that they see rightly or wrongly that they want this to get resolved in a matter that's fair to both parties, and they don't feel like what's been proposed has been both parties. Okay, now, where does Congress come in? I think I've come to the opinion that Congress should step in. But here we are again with something that I will tell you, it's just such such high stakes for the country during literally the busiest season, I think in, in what, three years potentially, and probably the most important kind of quarter in an economic industry so that small businesses can stay open, so that consumers can have some relief from the inflation, so that we can actually have like some outlook on the economy that's bright. What are your, just your thoughts, your opinion, your take, what do you think Congress might do? So remember, we came close to having the strike before the election, and we all sort of waited with bated breath because that could have been catastrophic for the outcome of the election. It was avoided. They worked out this deal that they thought would work because it had that generous pay increase, as you said. Pete Buttigieg also involved as transportation secretary with Marty Walsh. The hang-up is paid sick leave. So. And Democrats are divided on this, of course. You have plenty of Democrats like Bernie Sanders, uh, many others saying, we're with labor. They should get a better and more generous deal. It's hard to go back and give them that deal directly. What Nancy Pelosi did, still speaker, and I think in a brilliant fashion, was to say, we're going to pass the bill that makes sure that this deal is enforced and there is no strike right now, but we will then pass separately a bill to provide seven days of sick leave, which is a little bit, which is less than what the freight workers want, but would probably be enough to get an agreement over the finish line. That got all of her progressives on board, but we all know that that separate bill is going to have to go through the Senate and survive a filibuster. Now, I'm not sure 
how many Republicans in the Senate really want to filibuster a bill to provide a little bit of sick leave for rail workers who, as you say, are often uh, under enormous stress and also sometimes die. But it's dicey at this point. And you can only go for so long with congressional action that forces people to work if they believe that they're being treated unfairly. So I'm hopeful that somehow we'll manage to get all this done in the lame duck, but I am not, uh, I'm hopeful, but realistic. But at some point, I think they're going to have to go back and add sick leave, even if that's done through more negotiations with the rail industry and the administration really pressuring it to add those days of sick leave in. And and the sick leave is important to note that because of the lack of sick leave, again, these are workers who have basically been on call. Norm, it's the equivalent of a doctor such as myself literally being on call to work 24-7, 365. And that if you are sick, and this is, you know, aside from COVID, just anything recovering from, you know, a hospitalization or any of these things, that you have to then take that hit on your pay, which also has not had cost of living, cost of living adjustments and, and some of the other, some of the other kind of rightful wage increases that they have deserved for years, even prior to COVID. So, you know, I'm, I've been, I worked for Ted Kennedy. We, we were big fans of unions and rightfully so, I think, have watched labor struggle with their identity. This is going to be important. And I think it's going to be incredibly important as a signal of what labor kind of unions in general beyond this particular industry, what their power is beyond this, because people are watching, you know, everybody from SEIU to some even smaller unions are watching to sort of to try to understand, like, is this going to be the path of the future of congressional intervention? What what are the industries that could be halted by this? You can think of so many, everything even from even from hospitals where we've got unionized workers all the way through down the down the rack to small businesses, which have banded together. So this is important. I want to target it and kind of stay tuned. Listeners will keep progress of this. But with that, I do want to thank my my co-host, amazing Norm Ornstein, and also give a shout out. We're going to bring this session of our podcast to a close. And I'd just like to thank all of you for listening to us. And we, it'd be helpful if you could rate and review and subscribe to this feed on your favorite podcast player and share this episode with your friends on social media. If you like this episode, become a member of the DSR Network. It's always a great gift during holiday season. If you're wondering what kind of gift can you give, you've got some friends and family, this is a great gift of membership to the DSR Network, and you can get access to our bonus segment. Uh, Words Matter is a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is the amazing Grant Haver, and the executive producer of the DSR Network is Chris Cottonor. And the next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on December 9th. See you then. <laughs>